still in Matthew 19. And um, if you want to turn in Matthew 19 to verse 13. And we'll read Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. These are, this is the text we're studying today as a church. If you're new with us and, and you're not used to bringing a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible in the back of the pew, read along with us. You can read along with us on screen. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, you can take the physical Bible there in the pew back. You can download one on your phone for free. Uh, I, we use the ESV Bible, and so if you just type in ESV in your app search, you'll be able to find that and use that Bible. But here we are, Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I, I pray, Lord, that as we look to your word this morning, we would know what it means to welcome children into our worship service and welcome children into Christ's presence. And Lord, I pray that as we are thinking about ways that we might hinder children, that you would reveal those things to us. Thank you for all that you've given us. Give us insight into your word this morning. Amen. And children, for if children are welcome in our worship service. So just so you know, children are welcome. For if you're out there, we're okay with, with noises, and we'll talk about children's noises in today's, um, in today's passage. And they're, they're a good thing. They're a beautiful thing. Uh, but let, let me just ask you this question as we begin. Have you ever been at a coffee shop or a restaurant, or maybe you're flying on a plane and and you're e you've eavesdropped on someone, someone's conversation going on behind you or in front of you or around you. You don't really know the people, but you can hear what they're saying, and it's just really interesting. And, and so you can't help but to listen to them. Now, now, as you're listening to them, suppose you hear one of these two people repeat something that sounds kind of shocking, maybe even a little distressing, and you, you, you hear them repeat it several times in the conversation that you're listening to. In fact, this, this comment, this distressing comment, is, is actually what started the conversation. It's what you heard that, that drew you in. Maybe a person, maybe they said something like, and then the Sasquatch grabbed my shoulder and he pushed me down and ran in the direction of the woods and it seemed like he was saying that he was coming back. Like, if you hear that, you, you're going to listen because that's unusual, isn't it? And we don't preach about Sasquatch often and that's the first time I've ever mentioned his name in, in church. But it would be something that would draw you in. And, and, and suppose you're listening to that, and, and this person says that same thing over and over and over again as these two people are talking. Well, well whatever that comment was, you'd probably say that's what this conversation was about, wouldn't you? No matter all the twists and turns that the conversation would, would take, if one line keeps being repeated... That's the thing that you know was, was the theme of the conversation. The theme that overshadows this morning's text is the reality that Jesus is going to the cross. 
all of what we've been studying in Matthew, all the way, going all the way back to chapter 16, is underneath this theme. In fact, if, if the Bible were divided up like, like a modern novel, the way that we divide up our novels these days, uh, we, we would probably put chapters 16 through 20 all in one chapter because of this dominant theme. Jesus is growing, going to the cross. We, we would see this as one long conversation between Jesus and the disciples and the other people who happen to be jumping in on it. It's a conversation that we've been watching move from town to town to town, and yet it's all been one conversation. So, so flip back a couple pages in your Bible to, to Matthew 16, verse 21. This is what started this all. This is where we started listening in to this shocking statement. This is right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew says that from that time, look at, look at Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began, that means this was an ongoing thing. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then in, in chapter 17, he says this shocking thing again. Flip over a page in chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And he's going to say this again in this same conversation when we get to chapter 20. Look over at chapter 20, verse 18. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he'll be raised on the third day. So between... Chapter 16 in Matthew and chapter 20 in Matthew, the dominant theme of this entire conversation is that Jesus, the one who, who way back in chapter 3 was anointed as king and then confessed to be a king by Peter and the disciples, and then up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was revealed to be king. This king is going to be killed for the sins of his people, and he's going to be resurrected. That's what chapters 16 through 20 are about. Everything that Jesus has been teaching in these chapters is shaded by where Jesus is going. Absolutely everything. So what Jesus taught about giving up his own rights way back in chapter 16. So, so that we won't be a stumbling block to others. That has everything to do with the cross. When he talked about what greatness in the kingdom looks like, that has everything to do with the cross. How, how we think about sin and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation, that has everything to do with the cross. What Jesus taught about marriage, it has everything to do with the cross. What he taught about singleness last week, the cross. The disciples don't understand this yet. They're not getting it. Jesus has been showing them that they are following a king who is on his way to suffer and die. 
their king isn't great in the worldly way that think they think he's supposed to be. He's great, but his greatness is in a kingdom of heaven sort of way. And being great in the kingdom of heaven and being great in the world, as we've seen, are totally different things. But the disciples are still thinking in a very worldly way. What Jesus is teaching isn't sinking in, and it shows in our passage this morning. We see that as we, we begin to look at our passage. But it's not entirely unusual to not quite get things, is it? A lot of us are that way. I'm that way. We're following Jesus. We're striving to follow Jesus as Christians. But we're not thinking his thoughts after him. Not completely. And honestly, we don't even know that we're not thinking his thoughts after him. We're still so much in the world, we don't even realize how tainted by the world that we are. That's why Paul in Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So to, to really understand that the king that they've been following around is going to willingly give up his life on a cross... To understand that his greatness and majesty will come through his humility and his suffering. The disciples are going to have to have their minds renewed. Completely renewed. In order for you and I to really grasp what it means to be a Christian. And to follow Christ as our king. We've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. These things don't come naturally. You can't get this by thinking the world's thoughts. We can't keep thinking like the world and expect to understand things of heaven. Our minds have to be made new. And that's why Jesus never wastes a teaching opportunity with his disciples. He's always training them. He's always preparing them for what's to come. And in the training process, or what we call the discipling process, here in our text, we get this real-life parable. This gets us to verse 13. Long intro, but here we are. Somebody, presumably that the parents of these kids, are bringing these children to Jesus so that he would pray for them. This is a, 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 like a prayer of blessing over them. Matthew doesn't say much about this prayer, and, and we don't really have a precedent for this in the New Testament. We don't see this anywhere else. It kind of feels like if you know the book of Genesis, it kind of feels like in Genesis when Joseph brings his two little sons to Jacob to be blessed. So these are the little ones being brought to grandpa to be blessed. And we know what happens to those little boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, because of that blessing that Jacob prays. But here in our text, Matthew doesn't really tell us what happens. It doesn't tell us what happens when, kid, when Jesus lays his hands on these kids and prays? And he doesn't tell us what happens because that's not the point. That the point of this incident is what happens next. And this is the moment we've all been waiting for. The disciples rebuked the people for bringing their kids to Jesus. And we read this and we go, come on, you guys just don't get it, right? This is hard for us to imagine. It's really hard for us to imagine someone rebuking 
their parents for bringing kids to Jesus because we're used to seeing hundreds of pictures of Jesus throughout our lifetimes of this smiling man and, and kids are on his lap, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. And we've got, we've got hundreds of songs like these, all written throughout hundreds of years of Christian history. We have decades and decades and decades of VBS and Sunday school and Awana. How could the disciples not know about Awana? Right? It's hard for us to imagine the disciples rebuking these families, and yet it happened. And, and really, we have to kind of take ourselves out of 21st century and put ourselves back where they are, because what they did would not have been unusual. The disciples were doing what would have been normal for their culture. Kids were not thought of then the way that we think of kids now. They, weren't, they didn't have politicians saying, well, remember the kids, or think of the kids, or we're doing this for the kids. There weren't public school systems to educate kids. There weren't free health care programs or, or free lunch programs. Our entire worldview as Westerners has been influenced by Jesus' welcoming of the kids. And we've got to remember what we're witnessing in this text is actually the moment that everything changed. Up to this moment, if you were a, a just imagine you're a landowner in, in, in the first century. The only times that you would have used the word kids and free in a sentence would be when you said free labor. If you lived in a more urban area, kids were just another mouth to feed until they could work to earn their keep. But the idea of kids having intrinsic worth, that's not a thing. Kids were a hindrance. Kids were a burden. Sure, they... they they could pass along the family name, but they were still at the bottom of the social ladder prior to Jesus' ministry. So while it seems really abnormal for us, we come after this moment in history. For the disciples, they came before this moment. They're experiencing this moment. So for them to rebuke these families for bothering Jesus that was actually culturally normal and expected. Remember, if, if the disciples believe, and they do, they've told us they believe this, if they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king, the one who will rule the world, well, he's too important for these grubby little rugrats, and the disciples made sure to let these families know that. But what's Jesus' response? That's what we're going to look at today. What's Jesus' response? response. We can kind of, because we've been studying Matthew, we can kind of predict what Jesus' response is going to be. After all, think of all that he's done so far. He has, see, he has welcomed in these, what, what he, the Gentile dogs into the kingdom. He, just last week, he welcomed eunuchs into the kingdom. He's already touched lepers and made them clean. He's, he's already touched bleeding women who were unclean and made them clean. He's, he's touched demon-possessed people. He's healed all of these people. He's welcomed them into his kingdom. He's already eaten with prostitutes and tax collectors, and he's called for their repentance, and he's invited them into the kingdom. And what's more, and this is the most important aspect 
of all of this, all of these worthless nobodies are being brought into the kingdom because this king is going to die for them. He's going to make them truly clean. He's going to make them worthy of the kingdom. He's going to qualify them for the kingdom. And so having seen all of this already, for us, reading this, verse 14 seems inevitable, doesn't it? Of course Jesus is going to say what he's about to say. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then he laid his hands on them, just like he laid his hands on all these other worthless people. And then he went away. Those two statements right there that Jesus says, that's what we're going to focus on. The first statement, we should never hinder children from coming to Jesus. And then the second one, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. Just a simple two-point outline, okay? So if you're taking notes, we're going to spend most of our time on that first one. And here it is, we should never hinder children from coming to Jesus. Don't do anything, don't put anything between a child and King Jesus. That's Jesus' command. And we can look at that and we look at the disciples and we can say, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. Because the disciples are physically blocking children from coming to Jesus. They're obstructing the kids. And Jesus says, stop obstructing them, let them come. But what, what does that mean for us, though? We don't have Jesus sitting here on the stage like Santa, waiting for the kids to kind of file and sit on his lap and be prayed over. and We don't have that. So, so what are the ways, and we have to understand when we read things like this, there are ways that we hinder kids. What are the ways that we hinder kids from coming to Jesus? And there's two ways. There's lots. There's two we're going to talk about. One is this. When we don't represent Jesus as he truly is, we are hindering children from coming to Jesus. Let me say it again. When we as Christians don't represent Jesus as he truly is to the kids, we're hindering them from coming to Jesus. What do I mean by that? When we don't represent him accurately. How, what I mean by that is how we're communicating who Jesus is. In order for kids to know Jesus, we have to teach them about Jesus because we can't walk them up on stage to sit with him. So we have to teach them about Jesus. And, and they'll, the Kids will know who Jesus is through our teaching. So when we're teaching kids about Jesus, are we telling them the truth? Are we telling the kids the truth about him? Are we actually bringing them to Jesus when we teach them? Or are we bringing them somewhere else? Are we bringing them to the Jesus of the Bible? The one whom all of Scripture points to as the promised one? Are we, are we bringing them to the long-awaited presence of God? The long-awaited king who came to die for the sins of people, the one who caused the little children to come and us to come and repent and follow him? Are we bringing them to the one who saves the kids and us by his grace? And we all go, yeah, of course, that Jesus. I would teach that Jesus to the kids. But let me show you one of the ways that we... And by, when I say we, I mean all of them, including me, 
one of the ways that we don't always bring kids to that Jesus. Let me just give you an example. Let's go to the, to the story of the prophet Samuel when he was a little boy in 1 Samuel. So some of you know this story, some of you don't know this story. Let me just refresh your minds. In 1 Samuel, we have the story of a barren woman named Hannah who prays that the Lord would give her a child. And God answers her prayer, and she names the boy Samuel. And she dedicates this little baby boy to the priesthood to serve as a servant of the Lord. And, and little Samuel moves in to be a tabernacle worker with a priest named Eli. Well, one night, when little Samuel, we don't really know how old he is, but the Bible calls him boy. So one night, while boy Samuel is lying next to the lampstand in the holy place, He's waiting for the light to go out. He hears a voice. Samuel thinks that it's Eli calling him because that's what we would all think. And so he runs to Eli and Eli says, it wasn't me, go back to bed. And this happens three times that night. Yes, Eli, what is it? It wasn't me, go back to bed. Three times. On the third occasion, Eli realizes that the Lord is speaking to Samuel. And so he instructs Samuel on how to respond. Samuel obeys, and the Lord tells Samuel what will soon happen to Eli's family. The young prophet receives his first word from the Lord. This is like his initiation into prophethood. And it's awful news, terrible news. And, and the little boy, Samuel, has to tell Eli that his family is going to be cursed forever and there will never be an atoning sacrifice that will cover their sin. Now, if we're teaching this story to kids, that's, that's the end of it. If we're teaching this story to kids, how do we teach that to kids? Let me just throw out some ideas. First of all, here's what we usually wouldn't do. We wouldn't tell them about Eli's family. Because <laughs> if you read for Samuel 1, 2, and 3, that's like rated R. So we don't tell them about Eli's family. But then we tilt the story to be mostly about young Samuel. Samuel was a little boy just like you, as we tell the kids. He was just like you. And, and, and the motivation behind this isn't bad. Our motivation behind telling the kids that Samuel is just like them is that we want the kids to know, this is good, we want the kids to know that the Bible is relevant to their life, that, that, that there are people like them in the Bible, and that's a good motivation. But think of the ways that, they, that we do this. If you're just like Samuel, and if God speaks to you in the middle of the night, you should listen to him. Or, or how about, if you are a good little boy, like Samuel, then God will speak to you. Or maybe, Samuel listened to what Eli told him to do. We should all listen to the adults in our lives. Now, without, I'm not going to get into the merits of any of those, but what's missing? This is God's word. What's missing here? Jesus. Right? We, when we don't teach all of the Bible as taking us to Jesus, what are we doing to kids? We're keeping kids away from Jesus. We're hindering them from Jesus. Now, how, how should we Bring kids to Jesus through Samuel's story. Well, we do the same thing that the apostles do. We take the kids to Hebrews 1. Long ago, 
And, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So let's bring this all together. So little Samuel is the prophet who would one day anoint young King David as king. God spoke to Samuel, and then Samuel spoke God's words to everyone else. But now what's happened? Now Jesus has come, and he is the promised king from David's family, and he's the one who reconciles all of us to God. God has spoken to us, He has revealed himself to us through Jesus. Now what's happening? Well, now, upon hearing that, what do the kids hear? The the kids now know that 1 Samuel's not about them, right? It's not about how they're like Samuel. It's not about being good. It's about the way that God made the way for the coming Messiah. And now, Jesus the Messiah has arrived. And we can know God in him and through him. God has spoken to us more clearly than ever because of Jesus. And then that gets us to the gospel. So so, so rather, rather than the kids wondering if they'll ever, ever be as good as little Samuel so that God would speak to them, rather than kids thinking, maybe God hasn't spoken to me because I'm a bad boy, The kids are pointed to Jesus, the one who came to us while we are sinners. The one who died because we would never be good enough. The one who makes us holy, and he brings us into God's presence. Do you see the difference? So rather than being a hindrance to kids, rather rather than this hindrance of moralism or the hindrance of you are specialism, when we rightly bring kids to Jesus, kids are given the good news of the gospel. So no matter where we are in the Bible, from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, we're taking them to Jesus and how he has fulfilled all of what God has promised. You see how this works? And through that teaching, kids are led to respond to Jesus as he is. He's our God. He's our King. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. Bringing kids to Jesus means teaching kids to rightly know Jesus, that all of the Bible points to him. And so our goal, friends, our goal as as parents and teachers and church members, including singles, Our goal is because of who Jesus is, we're bringing kids to worship him. We're pointing them to Jesus as the Bible points to Jesus, and then our right response is worshiping him, and we're teaching kids to worship him. So the second way that we hinder kids is when we don't teach them to worship Jesus. Kids need to be trained, right? They don't come into the world ready to worship Jesus. We all need to be trained. Look at what's happening in verse 13. The children are brought to Jesus. They didn't just say, Daddy, I want to go see Jesus. They're brought. It's it's passive. Parents, 
drug them to Jesus. Parents, we have the the responsibility of bringing our kids to Jesus in the same way. That means we teach them about Jesus as he really is, and we bring our kids along when we worship him. So when kids see their parents worshiping Jesus, when they see them singing to Jesus and praying to him, when kids see that worshiping Jesus is a priority, we are discipling them toward Jesus. We're bringing them to him. We're bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. These parents in Matthew 19, they're taking their kids to Jesus to be prayed over. They're they're desiring, look at what that, I mean, just think about that. They're desiring that this Jesus be a mediator for their kids. That's a good desire, isn't it? They're bringing their kids to Jesus so that he will intercede before the Father on behalf of their children. And we could still do that. When we pray, Jesus intercedes before the Father for our kids. When you ask Jesus, Lord, save my children, that is exactly what you're doing. Through, through God's grace toward the kids of Christians, think about this, so Christians, kids, we're not Presbyterian, so we're going to get a little bit interesting here. Christians' kids have been given a, a, a special grace from the Lord. Because why? Because Christians' kids are brought in to the most holy place in all the world before they've even been born again. God, through his providence, through his grace, he's allowed your kids to come to what the Holy Spirit calls in Hebrews, Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, that's us, who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, they're brought to Jesus, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what Hebrew says is happening when we come to church. So friends, when when, when baby Zeph is making his joyful noises, he's doing that within this little kingdom outpost. He, amen. He, along with whatever God graces us with, whatever children God graces us with to come to worship with us, these kids who worship with us are surrounded by people who were apart of the assembly of the firstborn of heaven. That's who these kids are worshiping with. So when kids are brought to worship with us, these kids are are being brought before Jesus, our mediator, the only one who could ever possibly present them to God, holy and pure and spotless. That's what's happening when kids are here. That's who they're being introduced to when they're here with us. All together, we as a congregation, we're approaching the throne of God in worship. We're approaching God in praise. We hear from him through his word. We pray to him. We sing to him. And all of this is the highest point of, 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 our, of the Christian life on this earth. When the church is gathered on Sunday mornings, 
And the kids we bring in here are witnesses to that. Now, kids, they don't, they don't understand this, do they? They don't understand what they're witnessing. They're not expected to understand what they're witnessing. Depending on how old they are, they don't even understand you. But, but just because they don't understand you completely doesn't mean that you don't talk to them, does it? I hope, see, please say no. <laughs> we talk to our kids, we train our kids. They don't get it at first. They do get it later. That's why we don't have a separate service at Del Cerro Baptist Church for kids and youth. Up to about the age of four, we provide a nursery for parents that would like their kids to be in the nursery. The, one, the parents who have the, the littlest and the wiggliest kids are, are allowed into a, that area. But what's happening there is they're being trained to come in here with us. They're being trained in this direction. So, so once kids reach about age four with training, and again, it's training, just like you train them for everything else in their lives, you're training them to worship. By the time they're about age four-ish, it's flexible, kids are different, they should be getting close to where they can sit still with you, or at least still-ish with you, right? They won't understand everything that's going on. But, but you know this, and I know this, they're, they're aware of far more than we ever give them credit for. Think, think about this. Think of how many times a child from the age of four to the age of 18 will hear the song before the throne of God above. Think of how many times that those kids are going to sing Amazing Grace. Or Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. Or how many times will they sing, like we sang, All I Have is Christ. What do you think that's doing in their hearts? Just repetition over and over and over again. How many sermons will they hear from, if they're coming to church regularly from the age of four through the age 18? Over 780 sermons. Over 780 times a kid will have the privilege of hearing God speak to them through his word if the word is being preached in that church. And do not ever underestimate the cumulative effect of the word of God on a little soul. All of that Bible teaching, week after week after week for 15 years, that's enormous. That is an enormous privilege for kids who come to our church or any gospel-preaching, Christ-glorifying church around the world. Kids who aren't born or adopted into Christian families don't get that privilege, guys. They don't. But your kids do. They get a jump start on understanding the way things really are in the world. Because they are introduced to their creator before they can even talk. And they get to watch you worship our creator, our God, and listen to you in the way that you speak about God. They're, they're, they're nursed on this stuff. So by the time the Holy Spirit awakens them to the truth of the gospel, what have they seen already? They've already seen the goodness of God around them, haven't they? It, it's not as hard for them to receive the radical, and, I, and it is radical, the radical nature of the kingdom of heaven. It is upside down from the world, but they're, they're swimming in it. 
from the time they're born. Yes, their minds have to be renewed, absolutely, just like everyone else. But they're already living in a family of people who have renewed hearts and minds. And, and so they've experienced the grace of forgiveness. They've seen their parents confess sin. They've seen other Christians in their church confess sin. They've seen people reconcile. They've seen love. They've seen sacrifice. Christianity is the air that they've breathed, and so they're acclimated in many ways before they even receive the Holy Spirit. And all of that is true if, really big if, if you're bringing kids to worship and if Christ is being proclaimed and if you're valuing worship and you're valuing discipleship as a family, when we don't value the worship of Christ, we're 